0: say. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host Tyler Vella. Before we dive into the show, I'd like to make a few shameless plugs. For those of you who haven't picked up your copy of my book, Measuring McAfee, Why One Atheist's Attempt to Disprove Christianity Misses the Mark, head on over to Amazon to pick up your paperback or Kindle version today. This is a book-length review of David McAfee's book, Disproving Christianity and Other Secular Writings, and it's a veritable treasure trove of responses to a horde of atheistic, fundamentalist objections to the Christian religion. For those of you who have picked up a copy already, please, please write a review on Amazon. The better the reviews, the higher up on the searches the book shows up. So if you want to share the love, share a review. Now, speaking of reviews, I'd also love some more reviews on iTunes. If you listen uh, to the show on iTunes and would like to help the show have better search result placement, please log into iTunes and review the show. Also, I've recently been a guest on a couple of shows, but I have an ongoing debate on Calvinism and Arminianism that I think a lot of you will really enjoy. The debate is hosted by Owen Pond of the Ask a Millennial Christian podcast, and the format is actually pretty amazing. I am joined by Sean Cole from the Understanding Christianity podcast to defend the Calvinistic position and opposing us defending a kind of broad Arminianism are Leighton Flowers of Soteriology 101 and Braxton Hunter of the Trinity Radio podcast. Now, we were all tired of these discussions being too brief to really be meaningful, and so we're going to be releasing six two-hour episodes. Yes, that is 12 hours of content, uh, and we're going to address issues like depravity, election, the atonement, the efficacy of grace, and so on and so forth. You can already find the first episode on the Ask a Millennial uh, Millennial Christian uh, show um, over at the ChristusVictorNetwork.com. Now, each of us also has the right to do response episodes on our own podcast, but to be honest, I'm not sure how much of that I'm going to do here since it's kind of outside of the scope of this show and I've already done six shows on these issues previously, so uh, I'm you know unless something really stands out, I don't think I'll really be doing any rejoinder shows uh, here. But you can head over to the Network.com to find the Ask a Millennial Christian Podcast uh, for these debates as well as some other really great content. Now, Finally, if you'd like to become a patron of the show, you can also do so by becoming a sponsor on either patreon.com or through the sponsor link on the blog. That'll link you to the sponsor link uh, on the Podbean website. I'll have both links available in the show notes. Please help support the show so I can keep bringing you the content that you enjoy. With that, let's dive into this episode where I'm joined by Christian theologian and apologist Dr. Matthew Flanagan. Dr. Flanagan is a theologian and an ethicist. He works as a teaching elder at Tecanini Community Church and regularly participates in local and international conferences, panel discussions, and public lectures. Matthew is the author of numerous articles on ethics and philosophy and contributor to several books, including, and this is why I had him on the show, his latest book, Did God Really Command Genocide?, Coming to Terms with the Justice of God, co-authored with Dr. Paul Copan. Now, in this episode, we will be returning to the series on the so-called Bible atrocities to discuss the issue of whether or not God commanded genocide in the Old Testament. Enjoy the show. He knows! there's no end to his suffering and that is suffering itself just to know that there will never be a time when hell will turn him loose. The Bible says that Sodom and Gomorrah were burned with fire and brimstone, and the thousands of piles of sulfur and the burnt buildings and the burnt of and the burnt cigar confirmed that yes they were. He is in a horrible place. Horror like horror has never been known. Let the horror of knowing that you're gonna burn forever flood through your soul. I mean they're just they're animals. And it's funny because sometimes these sodomite activists, these queer activists, will sometimes say things like, oh, but you know, it's natural Pastor Archer, because the animals do it. And I always say this, well, you know, I've always said that you guys were animals. So, you know, you're just proving my point right now. Let the horror uh, to know that you're in a dark pit and you'll never have relief from that. That is hell enough for you and hell enough for anyone. All right. So, Matthew, thank you so much for joining me last minute. I really appreciate you coming on. Not a problem. Um, so, why don't you tell um, myself and the listeners about how you got started and interested in kind of your, your back history um, with the topic of, quote-unquote, genocide in the Bible?
1: Okay. Well, my, um, my back history is that I'm interested in the question of the relationship between God and morality, and I've done i done a bit of directed research when I was doing a master's degree on that, and lots of stuff on my PhD thesis on it, and have got some articles published on it. So I was just generally interested in that question, and I wanted to sort of go through and address the kind of objections that people raise, and, and I noticed that people always raise, whenever you started talking about, you know, relationship between God and morality, people would always throw up, oh, what about this passage in the Bible, which is, has God allegedly doing some atrocious thing? And... And to some extent, these things were irrelevant because the question wasn't whether the Bible was a reliable guide to morality. The question was God's relationship to morality. But I thought, you know, it would be worthwhile sort of researching these things a bit and, and getting some background into them and some understanding of them. So I sort it was on a bit of a project where I was working on that in different contexts. And I put a, I came across, I had some ideas that are on the issue of uh, the Canaanite stuff in the book of Joshua that I put up on my web blog. And as a result of that, someone read it said we like your ideas. Can you present this to the Society of Biblical Literature? And so it sort of went from there. So I was at on a panel discussion where I presented some ideas to the Society of Biblical Literature on the subject, and then I got approached by a publisher who asked if I would co-write with Paul Copan on this issue, and it sort of took off from there. So that's really what happened. It was sort of a a thing I was doing on the side, had some ideas about, and and some people came to me and sort of said, hey, can you, you look at this more and more depth? Can you? Can you that in
0: more detail? That's really cool. Very cool. Um, yeah, now a lot of people have, um, a lot of expertise in, in this very narrow, uh, specific topic, um, within kind of Old Testament, uh, studies and ethical studies. Um, I, I did a show previously dealing with um, kind of the, the starting out is God a moral monster generally, and and talking about some of the the moral questions that arise from that. Specifically, um, the fact that these types of objections are what's called an internal critique, um, and I know that that you talk about that as as being um, an important thing to understand. Um, when, when you're dealing with these types of objections. Could you, could you lay out for people what an internal critique is and why it's important for the Christian to understand that the atheist is actually asking a question about uh, assuming basically our, our position to begin with and why that's important?
1: Well, so an internal critique is when you try and critique a position um, inter- on its own terms. So you take assumptions or beliefs that your opponent has or your interlocutor has, and you try to show, given those assumptions, this position is problematic. So it differs from an external critique. An external critique is when you try and say there's some kind of fact that has to be granted completely independently of, of the position and, and you try and show it doesn't meet those facts. An internal critique is sort of where you say, okay, well, let's, let's grant for the sake of argument a person's position and then show that if you grant for the sake of argument the position it has problems. So it's really adopting your uh, your opponent's position for the sake of argument and then trying to show that on its own terms, it fails. And and the, the reason I think it's important is I think it's often, there's a lot of confusion about this and the way it's discussed. So sometimes people will, you know, it, it, there's, there's an easy sort of comeback to, to say to a skeptic, and let's say a skeptic says, oh, well, you know, God commanded genocide. You can always turn around and say, well, does that mean you believe in God then? <laughs> you know, God commanded genocide. How can he command genocide if he doesn't exist? And you think he doesn't exist, right? Or if, if, if they say, well, the Bible says God commands genocide. And you say, well, look, yeah, but you don't believe the Bible's true. So why is that a problem, All right? And, and you can kind of see how, you know, that, that's an easy answer in the sense that if the sceptic is putting forward, this is what I myself actually think, this position doesn't make any sense. He's, he's saying that a God that doesn't exist did something. or well. he's saying that a, a document that he doesn't believe is reliable says something. Well, so what? Um, but the argument has bite if, if the sceptic adopts a different approach. If the sceptic says, well, look, you know, given what you believe, you believe God exists, and you believe that this particular um, document has a certain level of authority. And given those two assumptions... Here's this problem so that's why what I I think it it, it stops believers being able to give these sort of easy answers but I think it also constrains the skeptic and this is another important thing that I see skeptics sometimes don't quite aren't quite consistent with it means that what the skeptic is doing is asking the Christian in terms of his belief so if the Christian then turns back and says well look you know I understand the passage this way and gives an interpretation of the passage the skeptic can't then turn around and say well if I don't accept that interpretation you know um, I, I think it's a load of nonsense, or I, I think it's not true, or what have you. The skeptic has to run with an interpretation um, for the sake of argument in terms of what the Christian believes, because that's how the argument's been set up. It's been set up internally, not externally. Do you understand what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. So I mean, in essence, um, they one of the, one of the ways that I that I typically come across it is. Um, i'll point out well you know you're, you're making this claim about god being you know a moral monster or whatever but there's these other there's these other concepts within the bible about god being holy and just and this concept of sin and the and that sin no matter how small is actually deserving of death and all this and all this kind of thing and then the skeptic will come back and say well well you know you're just saying that because you're a christian i don't i, I don't believe those or any of those are true and and that's when i point out well it doesn't matter if you believe that it's true. You're, you're doing an internal critique, and you're saying – basically, you're saying if God exists and if the Bible happened or the account happened as the Bible says that it happened, right. then God is a moral monster. But if it happened how the Bible said it, you have these other concepts that, that the Christian is allowed to bring into the discussion. You're, you're granting it from the get-go that's right
1: i mean if if the assumption if the person is going to say well if i don't believe the bible well then you don't believe the god commanded genocide right you don't believe you don't believe any of these things that, that are referred to happen so they're not they're not issues right they're only issues if, if the argument is put in terms of this is what you believe but then if it's in terms of what i believe then the question is not the question is not whether it fits the skeptics understanding of the bible it's whether it fits the person who has that particular those particular assumptions understanding of the bible i mean i got caught onto this because there was one thing that i noticed and a lot of sort of rejoinders. There was, a, you know, people would talk about this issue of the Canaanites, but there's all a whole lot of other stuff in the Bible about the Canaanites and the backdrop and the history and the narrative and, and all this sort of stuff. And often when I pointed this out, people would say, "Oh, yes," but of course they would say that anyone who anyone who you know, wants to justify genocide is going to say those kinds of things. But then, but then notice what they're doing is they're dismissing an interpretation of the text on the basis that they believe the text is unreliable. Um, but but the whole point of the argument is supposed to be if you assume for the sake of argument that it's reliable and you assume God exists, then you have this problem. So so once they take that kind of line, they they moved out of what they're doing and they're doing something else. And, and and once they're doing that something else, you can always turn around and say, what well, if, the, if, the, if the background assumption of our discussion, if we're, we're the background assumption of our discussion is that the Bible is unreliable, why is this even a problem in the first? Place? You know, it's only a problem if you grant the Bible is reliable. So you grant it for the sake of argument and then move from it.
0: Right. 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 Um, so let's go into some of these, uh, some of the passages, or some of the the background. Well, actually, uh, before we do that, um, is there is there a problem um, first and foremost with even e- even if we even if we, for the sake of argument, grant the skeptic's position that there is something uh, morally amiss about these, which I, I don't think either of us are going to grant, but even if we do. Is it proper to call what happens genocide? Is, is is the term genocide when we're talking about the the Canaanites and and the, the, the conquest of the land? Is genocide even an adequate word to describe what's going on?
1: Well, genocide is a is a legal term that was being developed in the sort of mid twentieth century, and you know it, it didn't sort of it didn't really as, as a legal concept exist before then. And the idea of genocide, as I understand it, international law is that your goal is to um, destroy an ethnic or religious group. So, so you know, you know, you're killing a group of people or you're dispossessing a group of people, but you're perp- you have this double intent. On the one hand, you, your aim is to harm them, to dispossess them or to sterilize them or to, you know, remove them or whatever from, a, from an area. But you've, you've got a bigger goal. Your bigger goal is to eliminate this ethnic or religious group and you have to have that double intention. So simply engaging in mass killing isn't genocide, as the term is understood. You have to engage in... A kind of mass killing with the intention of wiping out um this entire group and and as i understand it in the case law you know the, the, the law sort of says you must intend to wipe them out in whole or in part but when it means in part it means a substantial part that's likely to affect the whole. So if you killed off every female in a group, for example, you haven't killed off every member, but obviously killing off every female is going to long-term destroy the entire group, right? Because they're not going to give birth or or that sort of thing. So, so it, it has to be this intention to wipe out the entire group. And it has to be an intention to wipe out the group physically, not just things like cultural assimilation, because when you think about it, there are ethnic groups and cultural groups and religious groups, which come and go throughout history all the time. You know, if, um, if, if I go out and try and persuade a particular religious sect to give up its religious beliefs and every member of that sect gives up its belief, I've eliminated that religious group from the world, right? But that's not genocide because I haven't tried to physically destroy them. So there has to be these. It has to be these it's not enough to have a mass killing or a dispossession or something like that. It has to be done with this specific intent to wipe out the entire ethnic group, right? Uh, and I think that's where classifying it as genocide isn't as straightforward as a lot of skeptics seem to think it is, because they have to establish that the texts really intend to say that the purpose of this is to wipe out physically this ethnic group. And I don't think that when you read the text carefully or closely, it, it, it does that. I mean, there are passages which suggest that, if you read them on the face of it, but I think when you read the text in terms of its broader genre, in terms of the context it occurs in, you read all the texts on the question. I don't think that that's what's going on in the text. So you you, you might have a mass killing of some sort, um, but you don't have, you probably don't meet the threshold for what is called genocide.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, and and then um, kind of go along that before we, we get into specific passages, is is there... Is there a sense in the in the Bible where it's it's even not accurate to say um, that it was even uh, racially um, or ethnically or or even really religiously motivated um, to a large degree. I mean, I mean, were, were those the major motivations um, for for the command for the conquest of the land?
1: Well, there's a sense in which it's religiously motivated, but even here again, there's, there's, there's this tricky thing. Like, I mean, we have a concept in our society that we, you don't discriminate against people on the basis of their religion. But a religion can involve beliefs and rituals, but it can also involve practices. And and sometimes religions have horrendous practices. You know, like ISIS <laughs> have this practice of wanting to cut people's heads off. You know, and, and if somebody said, look, I think we should get rid of ISIS because they've got this terrible practice of cutting people's heads off and, and going around and, and massacring and genociding people, I don't think we would classify those, or look, you're trying to get rid of a religious group, that's genocide, you know what I'm saying? So so I, I think you have to even be careful with, with, with what you mean by, by when you say what out a religious group. I mean, clearly in the text, the I think part of the motivation is that these people have a particular religion and the idea is that religion involves certain kinds of practices and those practices are, are morally abhorrent and the idea is, is, to, is there's a couple of things about the religion. One is that they're morally, it's morally abhorrent, but the other thing is that it's, it's highly, it's it's, it's given the, the sort of sociological situation they're in, it's quite likely that other people will be drawn into it. Other people will be drawn into these practices. These practices, they're likely to be culturally assimilated into this group and adopt these horrendous practices. So there's really a, a kind of, if you like, there's, there is a religious motivation, but the religious motivation is focused largely on the practices of the religion as opposed to some, some things, specifically their beliefs, right? Um, yeah. So there is an attempt to try and try and, and, and address this group because it is a religious group, but it's rooted to religious practices. And as, as I argue in my book, it's also religious practices that we today wouldn't tolerate either. So it's things like bestiality and incest and human sacrifice and and those kinds of things. And if, if, if you had a religious sect for example, in New Zealand or in the United States of America, which practice those practices today, you know, we certainly wouldn't allow the sect to be legal, right? The sect wouldn't be legally allowed to set up um, and engage in those practices in our society. So it would be beyond the the, the pale of religious tolerance, even in very liberal societies like ours. So, so that's the... the Part of—I mean, that's not the entire thing. The, the motivation is actually quite complicated because, like, there's different passages on the text, and you have to look at the bigger picture and all the things that are said. But that's part of it: is that there's a religion, there's yeah. a particular religious group that engages in certain kinds of practices. There's also things like geography and various other things as well. But I won't get into that right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are good examples in the United States. Um, I mean, you can you can. Um, be arrested for uh, religious polygamy I, I mean it's, it's we we have we have currently in you know liberal United States we have laws banning certain uh, effectively certain religions because that practice is fundamental to that part of religion so there are certain yeah. fundamentalist um, LDS uh, sects that basically um, have to practice completely under the radar because of and they have compounds to secure themselves and hide themselves because if they do it publicly they will be they will be and often are uh um, uh, raided and, and arrested for that.
1: Yeah, in fact, there was a, a case in the U.S. I think it was Yoda versus Wisconsin, which was about homeschooling, and that was um it was they they allowed it, um, but it would have essentially outlawed um, Mennonites, right? Because Mennonites don't send their kids to public school, right? They have a, a community where they go out into the and they t- raise their kids on farms and all this sort of stuff, and, and and this this court case concerned the fact that the Mennonites felt that their religion was under under siege purely over educational laws. You know, and there are many countries, many European countries, in the world today where you have to send your kid to public school. You know, um, and you yeah. your permit to get to homeschool, and you have to convince the government that you're that what you're doing is legitimate and what have you. So even even our educational laws can, um, target what is fundamental to a certain religious group. Right. This is a problem with right. religious freedom jurisprudence in general.
0: Right. Right. So so what about um? I mean, you you have people like Dawkins saying that God is an ethnic cleanser. Um, I mean. Most people who, who read Dawkins uh, with even uh, half an understanding of the Bible realize the problem with statements like that, but, but what, do, what do people like Ruth a Moabitess and, and, uh, and, and, and others, uh, Uriah the Hittite, and other, what do are, what are those type of characters in the Bible tell us about the biblical view of, um, of basically Gentiles, of people who have, are, are, are outside of the tribes um, of Israel? Is it, is it that they're targeted because they're ethnically different?
1: No, it's not quite as it's not quite as simplistic as that. I mean, one thing you have to realise is, is, you know, biblical texts are you know they're they written in a culture where people which is largely oral. Um, they were designed to be you know taught to people orally and what have you, and so and and we have lots of you know, all well, lots of these different traditions and, and people speak loosely when they speak orally. They don't always speak precisely. So you'll see texts which say negative things about Gentiles, but then you'll see cases like a Ruth who's a Moabitess, or Uri the Hittite or whatever, where you see. Um, or even Rahab, um, or even Caleb, right? Who are people who are Gentiles who are praised for their faith? And so, if you if you read these things side by side and, and and try and be charitable and understand what's being said, when it's dealing with you know negative things about Gentiles, it's talking about practices which are typical to Gentile cultures. So certain kinds of religious or moral practices which are typical in these cultures, people who engage in these things, we don't you know we don't we don't like these practices. We think these practices are morally wrong. We think the practices are morally abhorrent. So for that reason, you, there has to be some degree of care in dealing with those cultures, you know, dealing with, 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 with situations where people are likely to influence you to do bad things, right? Um, but then there are other cases like, you know, your, your, the ones you mentioned, where you've got people who are from another ethnic background, but they've become a faithful follower of Yahweh, and they're living in accord with the laws that God requires of all people, um, and these people are commended as faithful. So, so if you read it carefully, what's really going on is it's not ethnicity per se that is the problem. It is what the ethnic person does, how they, the kind of practices they engage in, the kind of moral and, and, and practices they engage, engage in, and so on. And it is just a fact of the world that sometimes cultures have practices which, um, you know, sometimes ethnic groups become part of a culture which is distinctive to that ethnic group, and sometimes there are practices in those cultures which um, are worthy of critique. I mean, if you look back on Western history, we've had practices like dueling, um, which the Western upper classes used to do when someone insulted them, they would have a sword fight to the death. You know, we used to have the practice of race-based slavery in certain parts of, 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 of the British empire um, and, and so on, you know, and we, and that was part of our, uh, those those were cultural practices we had, which we had to reform because our culture was bad in that respect. Right. And that's, what's really going on here is, is that there are, there are these nations around Israel, they have distinctive religious and moral practices, which the, um, the Bible is critiquing. And so, generally a person who's part of this culture engages in those practices, but the Bible does recognise there are exceptions to this.
0: Right. Yeah, I've, I've always found it interesting that the basically the, the three of the four women um, who are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus are Gentiles. I mean you have Correct. Tamar, yeah. Ruth yeah. and Bathsheba. Uh,
1: yeah, in fact I mean this is this is the the, the, the point you see in, in, in the genealogy of Jesus you've seen these women who were um, if you like, Gentiles, but they, you know, they were convinced. So so Rahab is a situation where there's a woman who is a, a, a Gentile, um, but she has faith. She realizes, she realizes that Yahweh is God, and she realizes that Yahweh has given the land to these people. So she has faith in Yahweh, right? And the story of Ruth is a situation. It's very interesting. The story of um, Ruth is, is written during the Judges period where Israel is off the rails, big time, right? And so these people have left Israel because of all the, The problems are in Israel and they've moved to Moab and they get married and what have you. And Ruth moves back and she says, Your God will be my God, and she becomes a faithful follower of Yahweh, right? So so this is the point is that if a person is a another ethnicity, if they you know serve God faithfully, the Bible considers them to be on par with an Israelite. And the converse is also true. If an Israelite begins behaving you know, engaging in human sacrifice, performing incest, this sort of stuff, these kinds of cultural practices, which were being um, typical of some of the Gentile nations around Israel at the time, then God considers them to be apostates, right? He considers them to to have done something really bad and, and essentially adopts the same sort of standard towards them. So again, it's not ethnicity per se. Part of the problem is that we in our culture draw a sharp distinction between a person's race and a person's religion. Um, and we have, you know, in, in a country like the United States of America or New Zealand, we have large numbers of different people from different religions in the same country, in the same nation. And we have this kind of, you know, broad citizenship, which is pluralistic. But many ancient societies weren't like this. People that lived in a particular country, they had the same religion, they had the same moral practices and so on. And so if you identify someone as being from this ethnic group, you knew they were also from this religious group and so on. And, 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 and so those things aren't in common language teased out. So you have to look at what these people are really getting at. And I think often what he's getting at is not their race, not their genetics or their skin colour or their parentage, but the fact that there's certain religious or moral practices that this person engages in, which is typical of their culture. I mean you see this today sometimes with, with the whole debate about Islam. See, I've often heard people say things like, you know, they use this word Islamophobia and the idea Islamophobia is a form of racism. And see, I don't what well, I mean, I think people can be prejudiced against Muslims. There's no no question in my mind that Quite possible for people to prejudice against Muslims, but that's a prejudice against a religion, not against a race. You know, Islam is not a racial group. It just happens to be true that um, this group dominates in a certain part of the world, in the, in the Middle East. Vast majority of people are Muslim, um, and that and that's tied up with their culture and what have you. But if you if you're opposed to Islam, you're opposed to a religious group. You know, and and, and opposition to a religion is not the same thing as opposition to a racial group. You know. Race in and of itself, having a particular skin colour, is morally irrelevant. That doesn't seem to have any bearing on on anything that's morally relevant. But you know, your fundamental beliefs and values, and what you do as a result of your values, is very much what morality is about. So, so I, so I think that even though you can be prejudiced against a person's religion in certain kinds of ways, I think they're a very, very different situation to to say, oh, I disagree with this person here because of their religion, and I disagree with this person here because of their race. I think
0: they're just quite
1: different different issues.
0: all right so let's let's go let's go into the texts um so so here we are we're we're in we're in egypt uh god's god's children are basically suffering uh oppression they're crying out um to to go to for god to deliver them Do, does god does god well i mean god basically says look I, the 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 sin of the people in land hasn't reached full measure I, I'm not going to take you out of the land yet. Um, okay. What does that tell us about what's coming?
1: Well, well, they, the text you're referring to is is, is is before they go into Egypt when Abraham has a has a has, gets to a covenant with God. So there's a passage I think it's in, in I can't remember the exact chapter of Genesis. And there's a series of passages where Abraham has these encounters with God, and God gives him specific promises. And at one point, he's promised. He's promised the land of Canaan. He's told this land will be yours. It'll be yours for your ancestors. and um, I promise that you will have. And of course, at this point, his wife is barren, right? So he can't have any children. And and he's told not only will you have children, but you'll have large numbers of children. You'll be an entire nation. And this land that you're in, this land Canaan, I'm giving it to you as a position. It's yours. You have lawful position over it. But then there's this caveat. And the caveat is, but look, even though this land is yours, but even though I've given this to yours, you can't just go in and take possession of it. Why? Well, because the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached full measure. And what's, what's God's actually saying there, which is quite interesting, is he's saying, look, there are people currently living in this land and they haven't done anything worthy of being kicked out. So even though this land is yours, you can't just come in here and, and, and drive the people out. Um, we have to wait 400 years, right, um, until their culture is at a certain point where it's actually where I'm, where that's okay. So So immediately you see it's not about... Just arbitrarily coming in and taking the land of people who particularly have a particular ethnic group. And in fact, in the Genesis narrative, Abraham is required to have good relationships with the people of the land. He enters into relationships, you know, certain contractual relationships with his ancestors do as well as you know his immediate descendants with um, the Canaanites. And there's a there's a story where one of the the Canaanite groups marries, I mean, sort of seduces and, and has sex with one of the Israelite daughters and her brothers get really upset and they go in and massacre them and that's rebuked in the text so 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 at this point in in history abraham is a a person living in in the land of canaan he doesn't have a large he doesn't have any descendants he's going to shortly have a a small family he has been told this land here i'm giving it all to you it's yours but you can't evict the people the people in here you know their their sins haven't reached full measure so there's this idea that even though God gives them the land, even though they have legal rights to land, even though it's their land, they just can't evict them at will, right? There has some other things have to build or happen before that happens. So that's what that text really tells us. And so this is important because often you'll read skeptics who say things like, you know, they just threw them out. They just arbitrarily kicked them out. And there was, you know, that just because they had a particular race and, and that's not what the text says, you know, you, know, you, you might have objections with what the right. race is, but that's not it, right?
0: Right. So what about so what okay so so what about the passages um, that basically tell where, where God is telling um, the Israelites to to go in um, and there to you know kill all the inhabitants all the men all the women all the children uh, every every uh, every building is to be raised, every animal is to be put to death they're to, they're to take absolutely nothing right like I, I think it's uh, Jericho and I um, or th- those are the two that have the the total the total ban. Yeah. Um, I believe, if I'm remembering right, um, what 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 about those commands? I mean, is, isn't God isn't God telling the the Israelites to ju- just go in and wholesale slaughter uh, men, women, child, animals, everything, uh, every everything? Well,
1: there's a couple couple of things. Officially, I don't think he tells them to, to to raise all the buildings. In fact, there's a text where he says that you know you will live in these buildings you didn't build and, and this sort of stuff. Um, so so you know it's it's it's, it's not it's not T- quite what you said there, but yeah, there are texts where God uses this language of going, you know, show them no mercy, totally destroy them, leave alive nothing that breathes. Um, there's a couple of things with that though. Firstly, the, those those texts occur often in a context. So, for example, and in, in the, the, perhaps the most famous one, which is in, in Deuteronomy 7, it says, you know, when you have gone into battle with these people and you have defeated them and you have driven them out, leave alive nothing that breathes. Um, and so it's referring to a, a situation where um you know they've driven large numbers of the people out and the enemies have fled before them and it's referring to the ones that are staying behind right and then the text goes on and talks about how you won't drive them all out you're going to drive them out little by little and they're going to live around you so don't enter into covenants with them and don't enter into relationships with them so the text assumes this is not total massive killing of every single Canaanite. in fact it assumes that, that they're going to win a victory here some of them are going to flee and so it's actually much more limited if you look at contextually. Now, yes, it is involving the killing of non-combatants, and I think that raises a moral problem. But it's not when you read it in context. The idea that they have to just absolutely slaughter every single cane. The idea seems to be that they go into a, and the idea is that they they are gaining possession of this land, and the 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 idea is the inhabitants that are in that land must leave. They must all go. They're not to sort of, they're not sort of supposed sort of to set up living amongst them, where these, where, where they are sort of like a, a, a sub-community of this, of this bigger nation. So when they take over an area, the people are supposed to leave, they're supposed to, those people are supposed to go, um, and anyone who is left behind, anyone who refuses to leave is to be shown no mercy and is to be killed. Right? That's basically what the text is saying. But the accept- the understanding is these people, many of them will leave, and the understanding is that many of their neighbours will remain Canaanite and they'll have to live with these Canaanite neighbours and what have you, so these laws about entering into covenants with them and so on. So it's the picture of a gradual dispossessing of these people, um, which involves attacking certain key at certain times, certain areas or parts that are raided or attacked, and when the raid or attack, attacks happens, they you know, they don't take any prisoners. And in fact, if you, the interesting thing about the story of Jericho, you mentioned the story of Jericho in, in the book of Joshua. If you read the book of Joshua carefully, you'll see that these are actually disabled raids, not conquests because it says they attack the cities, but then it'll always say so immediately they went back to the base camp at Ai. Um, you know, they went to the base camp, that wasn't Ai, but they were coming in the region. But anyway, there, there was a base camp that they had. And, and so what's happening is they're attacking these cities and then they're going back and they're attacking the city and then they're going back. And then a few passages later, you'll see that city is, full, again, recorded as being there, full of inhabitants. Um, in fact, the book of Judges mentions several cities which they failed to drive the Canaanites out of and many of these cities are the same cities, or that that um, Joshua is said to have attacked and left alive nothing that breathed, right? Um, and so, what's going on in, in, in the text is they've ra- they've raided the city, they've attacked, it, people have run away, anyone who's left that they've sort of found they've killed, and then they've taken off back home. So it's it's, it's a, it involves the slaughter of non-combatants, if any non-combatants, if they came across non-combatants, it would involve the slaughter of non-combatants, but it's a much more localized. Um, picture than what you get the what, what you're suggesting in your question it's not killing absolutely every single man woman and child it's uh, c- killing you know the few that kind of that they come across that, that haven't left haven't fled from the city and then they go back to the base camp right so they, there's a moral problem there i'm not trying to say that this this somehow makes the takes away the moral problem but it's a different problem it's not a picture of mass genocide every single man woman and child right
0: yeah, I think uh, there's a really I, I think an interesting one in um, Judges one. <clears throat> I forget the the first the first clan, but it basically says they went in and they they drove all the Canaanites out of uh, Jerusalem, and then like six and then like six verses later, um, uh, Benjamin uh, didn't drive the Jebusites out who were living in Jerusalem.
1: Um, and, and, yeah, and part of this is part of this. I mean, part of one of the things I guess I got a lot of. A lot of people seem to get get pay a bit of attention to my work on. I don't know why because I wasn't, I don't think I was saying anything terribly, terribly novel. Is that you know, people have, have studied ancient Near Eastern histories of war. You know, ancient Near Eastern people used to record battles that they fought, and one of the they, and they discovered that when they wrote these things, there were certain rhetorical te- techniques that were used in writing them, which are standard across you know, um, Syrian, Egyptian, Hittite, and Israelite. Um, you know, the way they wrote the text, there's a very there's a similar kind of rhetorical, lit- literary way of writing them. And one of them involves pervasive hyperbole. So, whenever these people write about battles, they use this language of, you know, we just totally slaughtered everyone, we left alive, no one that breathed. This sort of language is used. It's a common literary trope in these writings. And it's a hyperbole, right? It's well known that it's hyperbole. That the people who were saying this weren't intending to say that they killed every single man, woman, child in these areas, right? They were, they were speaking loosely a little bit like the way we might speak loosely, you know, when we today sometimes use similar kind of rhetoric when we, we watch a sporting team and we say, oh, this team slaughtered another team, right? Or we, we say, oh, I said to my wife, oh, look, I've told you a thousand times not to do this. Or something like this, or I said to my kids, I've told you a thousand times to clean your rooms. I've actually told them a thousand times, right? It's a hyperbole, and it's the same kind of literary technique that's used. So, so we know that these texts use these kinds of literary techniques. We know this is a fact from how ancient people wrote historical narratives about war that this was a common way of writing and so it's not you know it shouldn't all be so when we see a text where like you just mentioned we're only three verses later one verse they say we went in and we wiped them out and and only three verses later it's saying oh and and then they didn't wipe them all out you know you can do one of two things you can look in and say oh look that author i mean clearly he's just contradicting himself in three verses somehow it just he didn't notice that he was too stupid or it missed him. And, and then the redactors for thousands of years who had this text, they never bothered to fix it. You know, you can take that kind of view or you can take the view that maybe there's there's something else that we're missing in reading this text. And I think when we you look at the way these people wrote these kinds of texts historically, it makes perfect sense that this language is what you would expect given the way they use language.
0: But what do you what do you say to the skeptic though who's looking at this and saying, um, you know, Matthew, you're 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 allegorizing the text, you're you know, you're 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 taking this this literary approach and saying that it's that it's hyperbole. Why don't you just take the clear meaning of the passage? That it's clearly saying that when uh, you know to kill every man, woman, child, and, and animal that 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 clearly just means to kill every. You know why why would you take this? You know. It's, it seems like you're you know you're you're inventing this hyperbole when because you don't you don't like what happens when you read the text literally.
1: Well, a couple of things there. Well, firstly, I'm not allegorizing the text. allegory is a different sort of sort of thing I'm talking about hyperbole. But secondly, if you look at that kind of response, that kind of response is essentially just a gratuitous straw man, right? Because what the person has said is that you know I don't like the text so I've invented this idea of hyperbole. Um, but what I actually did is I pointed out to historical studies, which look at these kinds of texts and compare them and study the kind of literary techniques that the people who lived in these cultures used when they wrote these texts. So there's a whole body of evidence to show that when people in these cultures wrote these texts, they wrote this way. So that's not me inventing something. That's a body of of historical evidence and so the skeptic if he's to be I think an honest skeptic has to deal with the historical evidence not just say oh somebody made this up and and there's there's something that you said there too and he says oh it clearly says this remember this is a person who doesn't who is who is a a skeptic often um, as a western educated person who's reading a text that's translated into English and he's saying they clearly said this but how does he know that you know, I mean, what you judge what a person clearly says to some extent is based on your reading and interpreting the way they use language and, and what have you. If I said, "Oh, it's raining cats and dogs outside," you know, it's it's, it's I said, if I said, to "You look, it's it's not the weather in Auckland today; it's raining cats and dogs outside." You know, um, nobody would take me to be clearly saying that cats and dogs are falling from the sky. Why? Well, because in English, the phrase "raining cats and dogs" is a particular figure of speech. Anyone who's an English speaker knows this, right? Um, And the context I said it, and I said the weather in Auckland is bad. And so we just use the same kinds of rules and principles in reading ancient texts as we do with modern texts. And we just have to be aware that we don't have the, we can't just kind of come in and say, oh, look, this ancient text means this because I think it does. You know, if we have a body of evidence that says that ancient people use texts a particular way, and if the context suggests that reading it another way doesn't make sense, and we have good evidence for thinking that this this is the way people use texts of this type. Then I think it's actually the skeptic that's being, um, you know, that's 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 playing the game here because he's choosing to read the text a way the evidence tells us it shouldn't be read because it leads to a moral objection that he wants to substantiate. You know, um, and so yeah, I don't have much time for skeptics who whose position is to sort of dismiss people's arguments by ignoring them and attributing motives to them. That, weren't were part of the argument, you know. If you think that this is not hyperbolic language, then you're welcome to look at the research. You're welcome to look at the studies of various different ancient and recent texts. You're welcome to show that those studies are wrong. You're welcome to show that the context suggests that some other reading is, is, is more plausible. But that requires argument. You,
0: know? you you've also um, you've also written some some work on um, some of the battles in in Joshua. Um, can you tell me a little bit about um, some of these battles where it says that Joshua completely, um, you know, annihilated the people? And what evidence is there that, that that's not the case?
1: Well, firstly, those passages. Um, there's this phrase, in, in Joshua, it talks about he, um, you know, he put them all to the sword, totally destroyed them, he left alive nothing they breathed. Now, the first thing about that is that's that's almost the same phraseology is used over and over and over. So it'll say he went to the city. He put everyone to the sword. He, left, he destroyed everyone. They feel like nothing and then he went to the next city. He put everyone to the sword. He right. and so it's 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 very much summary language, right? It's it's, it's summarising repeated. It's repeated over and over and over and over again, and the same language is used in the battle in the Battle of Ai, and the same battle is used in the Battle of, of Jericho, right? So it's this kind of summary language that's used over and over and over again. Um, now, there's a couple of things about that. Firstly, when you go onto the next chapters of Joshua, just after that. So it mentions all these areas. It says he killed everyone, left no light, nothing to breathe, left no survivors. Then it says he took the whole land, left nothing that to breathed, took no survivors as a kind of summary. And then it says, and then he gave the land to the various tribes of Israel, according to their inheritance. And then it spells out the inheritance that they receive, right? So this is the same land, the land that he's given them for the inheritance. It spells out in more detail. And it goes to each of the tribes. And with each of the tribes, it says, there are many Canaanites in the land here. You know, um, and they failed to drive out this group, and they failed to drive out this group. And so it then mentions the same areas of land being full of Canaanites, um, deeply entrenched full of Canaanites, and tells us that the the, the people, the, the tribes of Israel who got these lands couldn't drive these people out. And in some cases, it mentions the very same regions and the very same cities. So if you read if you read these, this one chapter as Joshua is saying that he went in and killed and wiped out every single Canaanite, and you've got to explain why immediately after that, Joshua proceeds on the assumption that the land is full of Canaanites, right? So you can take that reading, but then you're forcing the the person who's created this text into its final form of juxtaposing two blatantly, obviously contradictory things right next to one another. And, you know, you've got to ask why uh, an author would do that if, you know, authors, you, you know, we in times we miss things and we can we can you know make some speeches and what have you and slip up the speech, but generally we don't you don't generally write a text that blatantly incoherent, unless something else is going on. Um, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is is I would make about those texts is Joshua. You can compare Joshua to various war annals of various other cultures of the Moab of the like I mentioned the Assyrians and the um, Egyptians and what have you. And in fact, they're, they're very similar. There's lots of similarities. The way Joshua is written is very similar to the way various pharaohs, for example, wrote their histories of battles, right down to the the, the, the literary techniques that he used. There's You can just compare them. There's all kinds of, of – uh, in my book, I, I, I mention all kinds of similarities in the, in the stylistic rhetoric that is used, and the same with the Syrian texts and what have you. Um, and so, you know, if you, you compare it to, say, some of Thutmose's um, accounts of his battles, you'd find the structures the same, the the the, the, the kinds of emphasis is the same, and so on, right? Um, and one of the things that all these other texts have is when they summarise battles, they use hyperbole, you know, right? They summarise battles in this grand language of "we killed everyone, we killed all people." When that's used hyperbolically, so so so, so, so that's the second thing about it. And then a the third thing about it is, if you read how this language is used by the Book of Joshua itself, it's clear that it's hyperbolic. So, for example, in the Battle of Ai, it talks about how all the how it talks about they set the city on fire, and you know all the men came out to meet them, and then it talks about how they surrounded all the men and set an ambush for them, and they all died were all killed. And then it says, and then when they were still when they were pursuing the fugitives, <laughs> right? But it just said they were all killed, right? And then it talks about them all being killed again. And then in, in Joshua 10, there's a text where it talks about how they, they killed everyone, they they, they, wiped them, they they wiped them out, and, you know, and then it talks about how some of them escaped to walled cities, right? So, so I think if you put those three things together, so firstly, if you read the, the text of Joshua, literally, it's in conflict with everything else the book of Joshua says. Secondly, it's using the summary type of language, which is common to ancient Near Eastern War um, annals of the day, which we know was used hyperbolically. And thirdly, the same language is used hyperbolically, pervasively throughout the book of Joshua. I think the evidence supports the idea that this is hyperbolic language, right? I think if you choose to read that language literally in light of that evidence, then that's a, you're you're choosing to take an uncharitable reading of the text when you don't have to.
0: So why don't why don't you also share with the listeners a little bit about um, kind of the structuring of society? So a lot of times when we picture these attacks, we picture you know Israel. Uh, swooping in on on these um, uh, kind of uh, almost medieval towns, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like gated cities with shops and uh, you know houses and people all living inside. I mean, is, is that the way that 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 society was structured back then? How how were people living? I mean, are they really coming in and and killing and raping and pillaging uh, these type of uh, well, well, these type of towns?
1: One well, one one difference, of course, between between our culture and theirs is that we. In our society, you know, we are a very rural society, we're a very urban society, right? So we, for us, cities are mass population centres, right? So in New Zealand, for example, where I live, we have 4 million people in New Zealand. Our geographical area is, is larger than the size of the UK, um, and we have 1 million people living in Auckland. <laughs> so, so so, a quarter of the population lives in the, in, 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 in the main city, right? Um, that's not how ancient... This, you know this is a very rural agrarian society it's a society where most people live in the country so 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 when they're targeting these cities you're not talking about mass population centers of status um, and you're not even talking about cities that are very large um, you know we tend to think of cities as these really great big places some of these places are, are, are not are not very large at all um, you know and, and in fact we, we hear in the text at certain times where they they run to an area and they say these people escape to a fortified city so often these these things aren't even aren't even great big necessarily fortified cities at all um, and also we know from the book of Joshua which is interesting, in the start of the book of Joshua you, know, you hear about Jericho being walled and all this sort of stuff, it mentions that it was walled and that's actually a particular issue in the text because they don't have siege equipment to bring the walls down, you'll remember there has to be a miracle miraculous intervention to bring the walls down um, you know, um, you know when, when, when you sort of hear the story, Rahab mentions that the people are on high alert and have known for some time the Israelites are coming right and so, and so they've locked up, and they they're looking for spies and what have you. So this is a situation where you know, vast, any, even most of the people who were in the area would have fled, would have been gone, would be out of there by this situation. And in fact, the text mentions this. It talks about the the fear of God going before them, and God sending a hornet before them to drive them out, and so on. Right. So so what you've got is a situation where you, you have small sort of town centres. They're not major population centres. They're not full of large numbers of people. Of sort of people holding out against the israelites that are coming um not a situation where you're talking about these these mass population centers full with you know you know you know millions of people who are about shopping and somebody comes charging and, and that sort of thing it's a different different sort of situation
0: yeah i think um what was what was interesting um i i remember reading i think it was jericho they they did an estimate. It was something like four to six acres. Like the entire yeah, the yeah. entire city was like four to six acres, which is like smaller than your average American mall. Yeah,
1: yeah, it, you're, not, it's you're just, not talking about. It. Yeah, yeah. So part of the problem. This is part of the problem too. Is of course is is when you when you read something a text, often you have in your mind a, a kind of mental picture of what's going on. I remember you know years ago I was reading a book in English when I was in high school, and it was in... in it was, a, it was a famous New Zealand sort of literary novel. It was a famous sort of New Zealand biography. And this girl in this biography kept mentioning her mother. And then at some point later on in the book, it mentioned her mother's fat legs. And I remember being jarred by that because the whole time when I'd imagined her mother, when I was reading the book, I'd imagined her as thin, <laughs> You know, you know this, this sort of thing. Um, and so sometimes we have this mental picture when we read things. And the problem can be is that we draw our mental pictures from what is familiar to us. And, and when you actually think about it, it's actually quite obvious when you think about it, that when you're reading a text from a historical period or from an ancient people, they are not always like us in, in, in all kinds of ways. And so there can be this danger where we project what we're familiar on into their world in a way that is synchronistic. So we hear the word city, for example, and we project on it a whole lot of things about what we consider cities to be. But of course, if one of these things were to exist today, we wouldn't call it a city. We might, we might call it. We might not even call it a village, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That? It's it's like when you hear that they in the Old Testament, they had a you know there was a battle in the forest of Endor or something like. We picture a forest as like this green, lush. But if you've ever been to, to Palestine, it's like there's a tree here, yeah, uh, right. and forty yards away there's another tree, little yeah. thing. It's just it's, right. a it's a different it's different thing. Yeah, that's right. That's that. that that's that's what
1: we're talking about. And I mean, the same thing too is a lot of these, a lot of these war texts too. The, you know, they they exaggerate the numbers precisely because firstly they're not counting precisely, and secondly to give people a sense of, of 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 size. So, so you know, if you read carefully, the Battle of Ai is a good example. The Battle of Ai, it uses this figure of all these thousands of people that were killed. But at the very start of the battle, it talks about how Israelites had an initial battle where they got defeated. And they, and, and so, and, you know, and Joshua, basically what happens is they, they say to Joshua, they say, shall we send our entire army out? And Joshua says, oh, no, look, you don't need to. You only to send a few divisions. And, and they go out and they get defeated. And, and if you actually read that account and you read the casualty rates just mentioned there and you read, read how many regiments they sent, you're talking about a very, very small skirmish. We get kind of caught up with the fact that it goes at the end, it says, and so many thousand people died, but we know that this is how they wrote war rhetoric. When they wrote up numbers, at the end, they always give this massive figure as a, just a way of saying a lot. And this is a common feature of, of ancient war writing in general. It's one known phenomena about just general when you read, read war histories the way they wrote. You know, um, It just wouldn't have been feasible for those numbers to be literally true um, when, when, you know, when, when, when you think about it. I mean, Alexander the Great had a battle in, in Persia in 300 BC or something where he brought 300,000 troops. The entire Greco-Roman, you know, um, states' armies to meet the Persians in a particular plane, and that was a highly orchestrated affair, you know. And and, and, and so if you hear, hear about a skirmish somewhere in Palestine where 200,000 people die, this is not, you know, you, if you think this is meant to be a literal description of what's happening as opposed to the standard hyperbole used in ancient Near Eastern battles, I think you're, you're gravely mistaken. It just simply wouldn't have been feasible for us, a city that size and a community that size to have done what was said, right? So, so we've got to be careful about assuming you know our culture, which has mass populations, mass population centers, millions of people. You know, a very, very population, very, very dense population. With some of these, 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 these ancient civilizations, where you're dealing with a much, much things on a much, much smaller scale.
0: So I, I, I wonder um, then if you could tell, it's kind of, kind of shifting gears, and then, and then we'll come back because I had someone object to me. Uh, this, they brought this up um, for me a couple of weeks ago, and I thought it was a, you know, an interesting, different. Take on it um how they handled prisoners of war so someone brought up an objection to me about agag right so so when saul goes to war and he captures king agag he's effectively a prisoner of war and saul brings him back and samuel the prophet comes along and basically says look you weren't supposed to take anyone and he hacks him to pieces yeah right and this this is this is the prophet of god right so that they the 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 skeptic comes to me and says well look uh when when you're talking about war, this person was effectively a prisoner of war. They were a POW, yeah. uh, and yet and yet the the, the quote unquote godly person um, saw fit to, uh, in judgment of the other person who was basically showing them uh, mercy or something, uh, chopped him up, um, and yeah. that was seen as the as the right answer. How how do you respond to that type of thing? Well, firstly, firstly
1: you've got to realize that the legal the the a lot of the uh, stuff about prisoners of war are based on legal conventions between Western countries that are about two hundred years old, right? So, so the Geneva Conventions and Accords were not, you know, ancient Israel wasn't signatories to them. So, so from a legal, from a legal point of view, that's just an anachronistic thing. So you, you might have a moral point of view. So, you might say that morally, that you can't put prisoners to death, right? Um, but that's not necessarily true either. I mean, I, I take it the skeptics heard of the Nuremberg trials, right? Right. So so during the Nuremberg trials, the, the High Command of, Nazi, of of the Nazi High Command were sentenced to crimes against humanity and, and executed by the American and allies at the end of World War II, and some were imprisoned. And this was because of the atrocities that they committed. You know, they some of these leaders of the um of of, of the German army, you know, ordered mass killings of civilians and all this sort of stuff, right? And so so we in the West actually conduct the trials now we did the same thing at the end of the iraqi war right saddam hussein and his his leaders were um many of whom had committed horrendous atrocities were were tried by the iraqi people um and so so so, you know there are times when at the end of war we try people for war crimes right even in our society that's perfectly accepted legal practice Um, and if you read the story of samuel and agag it says just as your sword um you know, killed all these people, now you're going to die. So AGAG in the text is a war criminal. AGAG is a person who has has engaged in, in um war crimes against various people. So and 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 Samuel explicitly says that. So so so, you know, it's 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 it, firstly they're they're assuming this kind of, you know, Geneva Convention, Geneva Accord legal situation which didn't exist back there. And then they're assuming a moral principle which actually isn't correct in terms of how we ourselves View the situation. We don't actually think ourselves that, you know, at the end of wartime hostilities, it's always wrong to try and execute people who have come leaders from the other side who have done terrible atrocities. You know, we um, we 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 often allow people who have committed war crimes to face um, tribunals of certain sorts and and, and face justice. Um, so yeah, but I mean the prison of war thing. I mean, as I said, that's a, that's a legal convention. It's based on um certain moral principles about non-combatant immunity. Um. And I think it's generally correct that if a person puts their hands up in a a wartime situation, you know, that makes them immune to violence because they're no longer a combatant. But this isn't a situation like that. This is a a situation which is is different in many respects. In one respect, there's a person that's been captured. He's a war criminal. He's committed various crimes. And Samuel points that out.
0: What do you do then with with the objection um, that okay let let's 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 for the sake of argument grant that um, that you're right that these are hyperbolic passages that Israel didn't go on kind of a wholesale uh, rampage killing men women and children um, at this period though um, men of fighting age basically would have been the army right you didn't have you didn't have a standing army um, for these smaller kind of uh, city state nations like you might have had a professional army um yeah. uh you know of, of the assyrians or something like that um what do you do then with okay well they they killed all the men of fighting age so what they did was they created a um a socio-economic populace of orphans and widows um so so even if they didn't even if they didn't kill the the wives and the children um, it was still an immoral act because uh, you're crea- you're basically creating uh, this whole uh, dis- uh, dislocated um, uh, group of orphans and widows in a time period of history where basically to be an orphan and a widow uh, out in the wild was to just be susceptible to other people to rape and pillage and kill and sell into slavery. I
1: just, I just think again that's just, just reading into the text to picture that's not there. The picture you're assuming is that. You know, Israel went to war and they killed all the men in the country, they killed all or, or vast majority of men in the Canaanite nation during these battles and um, and left, you know, a nation of orphans. But that's not, I just don't think that's what the text says. You know, I mean, like I said, these are small scale skirmishes written up with, with, with war rhetoric. You know, um, Israel was a tiny nation that went in to a, 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 a the Canaanite nations outnumbered them immensely. And They go into a small, in the book of Joshua, they actually occupy a small, tiny strip of Canaan and they run some raids against their neighbours and they win some military victories, you know, against some some sort of centres nearby, some small cities nearby. And, you know, and those people in those centres immediately are driven out and they go home. And then the text talks about how those areas remained heavily populated and the Israelites couldn't drive them out. And over the next many generations, um, the Canaanites are still there, um, living there. And so they're told to not enter certain kind of covenants with them and not to intermingle with them. And they're told that they'll be driven out slowly and that God's not going to drive them out all at once and all this sort of thing. So it's not the picture. You know, people have this picture of... of Of the book of joshua as as teaching this kind of all embrace of conquest israel came in and they wiped out every single canaanite and they took possession of the land but that's simply not what the book of joshua says the book of joshua says they crossed the river they set up a base camp in a particular area they ran a campaign up north where they had had raided various cities and then returned home they ran a campaign up south where they raided various cities when they beat them back home and then joshua said i give you your inheritance take these pieces of land and they're occupied land. They're land occupied by Canaanites, and it says that the tribes, most of the tribes, had real trouble trying to drive them out. And in the Judges' period after the death of Joshua, it says they didn't drive them out. And, in fact, they God ends up saying, well, look, you know, you're not, you're not obeying me. I'm not going to drive them out. They're going to stay there. So so the, so the person who says that, I think, just hasn't read the text carefully because that's not what the text says. Like, the text doesn't have this picture of killing every single man, woman, and child, every single man that exists in Canaan and leaving all the Canaanite women, you know. I don't think they killed many at all. I don't think they, they probably didn't even kill the vast majority yet. They probably may not have even killed a minority. I mean, I subscite the minority. Right?
0: So uh, kind of my, my last, um, it's not really a question, um, more of something that I've always found uh, interesting and that I, I, I would love to hear your, your thoughts on. Um, I, I, I'm always fascinated by... Um, literary development within, within the old Testament. Um, not even this, I mean, literary development, but, but historical development in, in, in redemptive history. Um, and how so often, um, God, God basically foreshadows something to Israel that Israel is going to have to have to itself go through, uh, or something that's going to then be later judgment. So, so, you know, a, an example is Sodom and Gomorrah, um, you see the wickedness and the judgment of Sodom, and Gomorrah, and then you come to the end of Judges, and you find you know the Israelites being judged as basically acting just as bad, if not worse, yeah, nothing, uh, than than right, Sodom, it, Gomorrah. That's right. The story, of, I mean, I would I would
1: argue that the story of the Judges, the, the narrator of that incident in the Book of Judges, has. Deliberately narrated the incident so that it sounds like the story of Solomon Gomorrah, and he's for he's doing that for a, a point to point out to his hearers, probably not readers, hearers, um, that Israel have become like Solomon Gomorrah, you know, um, and and that's actually important stuff. With a lot of people, I've, I've run into sceptics who 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 have told me with a straight face that the Book of Judges condones gang rape, <laughs> you know, yeah, there's, there's yeah, a gang rape at the end of Book of Judges without picking up on the fact that the author has presented this story precisely to show how terrible Israel have become. They've become like Solomon Gomorrah, and they've done it by telling the story in such a way that when you read the story, you say, my goodness, this sounds just like the story of Solomon Gomorrah, which these people would have been familiar with. And so when the person told them the story, they would be going, that's the same story. The immediate point that would go into their heads, thats the same story. And that's what people are going to say. So so sometimes things like what you're talking about there are, are, are actually important because you know these people are great storytellers. You know, this is this is history, and there's there's a sense in which this is history, and I'm not going to deny that. It's, I'm not going to say that this is fantasy. You know, this is history, but this is also oral history told to the next generation. You know, when you tell a story to someone and you want to bring your children up to know the history of your your the history and the traditions of your society and what have you, you know, you you, you have to tell it in a vivid way. You have to tell it in a way they're going to remember. You 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 know, you 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 engage in the tactic of storytelling to 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 communicate this stuff and so this is in the text you know there, there are things in the text where the, the the narrators are deliberately telling the story in certain kinds of ways and using certain kinds of verbal and literary and rhetorical techniques and what have you to get across the point they're trying to make and it's important that we would pay attention to that because we in our society tend to think of history as just this kind of dry abstract subject where you record what happened in this dispassionate way you know but that's not what's going on with these texts right these people are preserving their histories for a point so that the next generation can learn important lessons from them. And so when they tell a story about how terrible Israel was at the time of Judges, they tell it in such a way that it's the story is, is recounted so that it echoes the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, so that the hearers go, oh, yeah, at that point in history, you were like Sodom and Gomorrah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and so I wonder if there's kind of an analogy here for that. It, it always strikes me. So um, when I was teaching through my adult Sunday school class, we get to Deuteronomy and we go through the blessing and curses. I always find it interesting that the the blessings are basically conditional. If, if, you, if you obey, then you know you'll get such and such blessings. But the curses are almost guaranteed. It's like when you do this, then I'm going to like 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 it's not really conditional anymore. It basically sets up you're good you're gonna fail. And so I often wonder reading through these conquest lands and, and kind of keeping the curses in mind. If there's almost a sense of, of, of that same recapitulation that's happening that we see in, in kind of microcosm in Sodom and Gomorrah, where it's, look, Israel, you know what happens to, to people living in the land that are unholy, that are unclean, that are violent, that are oppressive, that don't take care of the poor, that, you know, abandon God. You, you, you've seen firsthand what happens, so when it happens to them, uh, right? It, it, it's almost—it's almost like this. Look, you—you you, in the same way that they became like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, when you start getting, you know, into into the divided kingdom, and you start going into the exile, it's you—you you become like the Canaanites that need to be driven out. Yeah, I'm wondering what you think of that.
1: Well, that, the, the text actually says that, right? So in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus 18, which is a very infamous chapter in our culture today. Um, You know, in Leviticus 18, it mentions a series of of, of sexual practices which are prohibited from Israel, right? And various, it's got homosexual practices, it's got bestiality, it's got incest, it's got adultery, it's got human sacrifice. It gives a long list of of sexual practices that they are are not to engage in. And at the start of it, it says, you know, do not do as the Egyptians do, do not do as they do in the land, right? And then at the end, it says, you know, um, it says something to the effect of, um, you know, because the people in the land did this thing, I am going to vomit them out and you will be vomited out the, yourself if you do the same thing, right? In the same way. And if you look through the text, this, there's this parallel often, George, between, you know, um, this idea that, you know, God, I'm giving you this land, but if you, you know, if you behave the way the inhabitants of this land behave, the same thing will happen to you, right? This is the kind of the kind of thing. And you think about it in, in the book of um, Genesis, we talked about, you know, 400 years or four generations before, 400 years beforehand, it's got this idea that, you know, the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached full measure, and so then you get to the, when you get to the exile. The prophets in certain places use the same kind of language that you see in places like the Book of Joshua and what have you to describe what will happen to Israel. And Israel, of course, are not Israel. Of course, are exiled. What happens in Israel is they are attacked, the main their main city is attacked. They're defeated, their armies are defeated. You know, various people are killed, and then the population is driven out and sent into exile. So there is actually a. a, a throughout the text, if you read it, so you'll see it, this parallel between the fate of Israel and the fate of the Canaanite nations. The Canaanite nations lived here, God let them live here. When their sin reached a certain measure, they were driven out. And the same will happen to Israel, and the same does happen to Israel. right? And and that, that in itself helps us to see the qualifications I've been talking about, because this is fundamentally about dispossessing and driving the Canaanites out, not about killing every single man, woman, and child in Canaan. And what happens in Israel is the same sort of language as you If you read the, the story of the exile, you see the same sort of language is used in the account of the exile as is used in the account of, you know, Joshua or the thing. And yet, nobody assumes that at the exile, the Persians or I mean, so the Babylonians came in and killed every single Israelite. We understand the exile wasn't exile, right? We understand the vast majority of the population were not killed; that the elite were exiled. And, and, and that sort of thing, and that the language that's used is, is, is much more qualified. It's the same language and the same parallel. So I think there is this kind of, and that goes back to the what point we started with at the interview. We we're talking about, you know, whether this is an, an ethnic thing. You know, God prefers this race and not this race. Well, what you see is that the same standards are applied. If this race behaves this way, if this if they take possession of the land, and after you know, hundreds of years they still are using – if they still behaving in this way, they're doing these sorts of things, they've been doing them for without repentance for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, then God will evict them in the same way that he evicted the others, right? That's, the, that's what the text says. It says it over and over again. So there's this kind of parody going on
0: there. If we understand that all of Scripture points us, in the Old Testament, is driving us towards Christ, how how is this moving that redemptive um, redemptive history along? How is it how is it pointing us towards towards our Savior?
1: Right, well, well, firstly, you've got to be a little bit careful about how you understand that. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to read every single passage, and I wouldn't want to try and read every single passage in the Old Testament as trying to teach something specific about Christ. I think that's not necessarily what's going on in the text. But, I mean, the, 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 there's, there's a point to this, right? Abraham has, if you think about the the, the, the big picture here, Abraham has been given this promise. Um, so at the end of the story of Abraham in Genesis 11, um, you've got the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10 and all the nations have been scattered and the nations have united together this place called Babel in defiance of God in rebellion of God, rebellion of God. You know, they've come together when God told you to get them to go out and, and, and you know move across the earth and, and possess it and what have you. And, and they've come together and they're all in defiance to, to, to build this, this thing to heaven and it's, it's rebellion and God scatters them and confuses them, right? And immediately after that, he calls Abraham and he says, through you, all nations will be blessed, through your descendants, all nations. So he says, so so really there's this kind of situation that the world is in this mess. The the nations are divided and they're in rebellion against God. And he calls his first neighbor and he says, through you and your offspring, the the nations are going to be blessed. You know, so the goal is to bring the entire world together again, to to, to heal this, this problem. And then there's the narrative of how this promise of God is worked out gradually over hundreds of years. And part of that promise is that they will possess this land, right? So they possess this land, they're going to come into this land, they're going to form this nation. Um, and, 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 and then out of this nation will come this person Christ, and this person Christ will be ultimately the person through whom this whole reconciliation occurs. And so this the story of, 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 of the conquest is really this tiny little slice of that story, whereby they have to come into this land and they have to establish this new community that is going to be the community. Um, that's going to bring about this redemption of the world and it sort of fits in there um and so it's it's you know it's not it's it, it, it's it's part of the sort of thing is that they have to that this is this is what's going on is that they're trying to establish this community so here's this land that's been given to israel for the purpose of bringing about a community that can bring the restoration of the entire world and there's this group of people trespassing on it who are um you know not the legal owners that have been trespassing for 400 years and they've been engaging in this terrible unrehended behavior. And the problem is, is they, they can't just come in and live amongst these people because they are these, these people are massively more populous than they are. And so they will be assimilated. They will end up adopting these practices themselves. And that's why they're there to drive them out, right? Um, so in the, in the New Testament era, you, you you don't have the same kind of picture. You don't have that there's this land that the church is going to own and, and the church is going to set up this geographical country and this country will be the church and, and through this country the, the world will be blessed. The church doesn't function that way. The church is, is spread across the globe in pluralistic societies in very, very different ways. But there are there is some continuity and in, in, in principles in the sense that, you know, there are certain kinds of practices, religious practices, that we should not allow to occur in our communities, our religious communities. You know, we shouldn't tolerate incest and human sacrifice and this sort of thing. A person in gay, if we're in a community that's like that, and people are going to engage in that without repentance, we should um, try and not be. You know, we should remove ourselves, remove people like that from our communities, and you know, not you know, not, not allow them to to be part of our community, and and we should avoid influences that are that are difficult like this. But that's something or you could press morally from the text of the New Testament. I don't think you could press any idea that we can go out and kill unbelievers today because it was it was talking about a particular historical context where they were commanded to do this in light of this broader narrative which isn't applicable to us today. Right? And, and I think anyone who reads the New Testament and understands the Bible as a whole document knows this. You know, I I don't know of any serious religious tradition that has held that these passages are come somehow models for us to go out and kill you know, non-believers today, you know, this was about the land of Israel, it was about Israel at its founding period, about the embryo Israel nation, Israelite nation getting up, to go down the track where Israel fulfills the purpose it does, brings about the Messiah, and the Messiah is now bringing about the blessing of the world, and he's creating a new Israel, a new community, which isn't based on geography in this sort of way and it's the community that will use evangelism to bring about the blessing of the world right so so when you look back at it that way you understand that you, there's no warrant in this for believers today picking up guns and, and behaving like isis or anything like that anyone who says that i think just doesn't understand the the, the broad biblical narrative they picked, they picked the bible up and just pulled a passage out of the bible a particular part of the bible and and and, and have this kind of strange view that if you pull something from one part of the Bible, it's giving an instruction about what to do today, which I just think is not a correct way to read the Bible.
0: I agree. Um, So thank you very much for coming on, Matthew. Um, If you could give any recommendations for where people could find information about um, you or any research on this topic, if you have any recommendations.
1: I just read the book me and Paul Copan wrote, which is, um, you know, Did God Really Command genocide? Um, I think it's available on Amazon. Um, yeah, and, and there's also my website www.mnmzl.com where I've got some of the things I've written up, links to the, the books, of, books and articles I've written up there, but also general stuff about my distribution. Yeah, too, I've actually written about a lot of other things as well. So, so on my website
0: I've got little samples of things I've written about. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for joining me. Not a problem. All the best. So, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freethinker Podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, feel free to email me at freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Or probably the best way would be to find your way over to the Free Thinker Podcast Facebook group and dive into one of the discussions. As always, you can support the show on Patreon.com or by becoming a sponsor on the Podbean uh, thread page. Now, I hope you all enjoyed the show. Good night and God bless.